If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 will, beginning, will be beginning in verse 40. That can be found on page, if you know it, shout it out. It's an ace. It can be found on page 954 of your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in the pew Bibles. Again, that's 954. If you don't own a good Bible, please don't leave today without taking one of these home with you. It's our gift to you. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. What do you value more than anything else? Apart from God, what is your most treasured possession or item? Maybe it's something material like a car or a piece of jewelry or some sneakers. It could be something more abstract like your reputation or career. Perhaps a little bit more personal like your family or even your health. What do you value more than anything else? It's probably something that you've worked hard for. It's probably something that is rewarding and comforting and satisfying. It may be what you value the most. What would you do if that thing was threatened? How intensely would you struggle to protect it? Would you cross certain lines to keep it? One of the books we often use in discipling our children it's a story about a little raccoon named Gus who loves candy. Now, there's nothing wrong with candy, but candy has such a tight grip on Gus's little heart that he begins to lose his grip on life. It's what he thinks about when he's going to bed. It's what he thinks about when he's waking up. Gus starts crossing certain lines that he is surprised by. At first, he starts hiding things from his parents. Then he starts lying to them. Eventually, he steals candy from a store to try to satisfy his sweet tooth and his rotten little heart. Gus got to the point in life that he couldn't believe. He's spiraling out of control as a good thing. Candy becomes a bad thing in his life. It becomes his most treasured possession. He would give up just about anything to keep it. Idol, an idol is something that we worship in the place of God. It's something that we adore something that we work for. It's something that when push comes to shove, we will sin to keep and to maintain it. We don't often know what we value the most until it's threatened. We often don't know how far we'll go to keep something until we risk losing it. Part of what's really obvious in the Gospels is that people conspire to and then kill Jesus. Right, the four Gospels are basically extended passion accounts. Perhaps what's less obvious is why. Why do people kill Jesus? In John chapter 11, one of the reasons at least, as, the, as God appeared in the flesh, he presented Israel with a choice. It was God or something else. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. The religious leaders, as we'll see, they valued something more than God such that they were willing to kill him to try to keep it. It's actually God threatened the thing that they loved the most, and they couldn't have both. Brothers and sisters, do you love anything that much? Does anything in your heart rival with God to that level that you would trade God to keep it? 
Consider what you might be tempted to exchange God for as we read the text. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. If you are able, I will ask you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and Martha saw what he sees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. To them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We're going to split the text in half this morning and ask two questions. One's introspective. The other leads us to think about God. We're going to ask, would you exchange Jesus for? What would you exchange Jesus for? At least, what would you be tempted to exchange Jesus for? And secondly, more shocking, what would God exchange Jesus for? Us. What would God exchange Jesus for? The second question gets to the heart of God. First question, what would you exchange Christ for? What are you tempted to value over him? What would you be tempted to exchange him for if push comes to shove? This is not an abstract problem or question for Israel, for Jesus' disciples, and it's not for us. Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. He was rejected by the people he created and came to save. He was killed by Israel's religious teachers, their Bible teachers, for something. Jesus was exchanged and killed for something, for silver, for power, for politics, for comfort. Brothers and sisters, what would you be tempted to exchange Jesus for? There is something. You just might not be aware of it. We begin in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and Martha, they saw what he did and believed in him. What did the Jews who visited Martha, a grieving Martha and Mary, their brother Lazarus had just died. To their surprise, they saw Jesus and his disciples. To their utter amazement and shock, they saw what they were not prepared for. Four days dead Lazarus walked out of the tomb. How? Jesus commanded him to. Yeah, but how? John chapter 1, verses 1 
through 4, Jesus is the word of God, there with God in the beginning, before the beginning. He is the life of men. He is the light who shines in the darkness. Jesus speaking the same power, the same power with which he created all things and sustains all things, calls Lazarus up from out of death and darkness into light and life. How? Jesus is God. The raising of Lazarus is a sign intended to show us something. John calls it a sign. Signs point to other things, to other realities. When you're driving, you see a red octagonal shaped sign in the road. You know to stop. You don't think about colors and shapes like you're in some kindergarten class. You probably don't even read stop. When you see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in the context of his ministry and Israel's history and scripture, it tells you something. And this sign isn't just any sign. It's the seventh and final sign in the book of John. It's connected to Jesus' fifth I am statement. We saw it there in verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John has structured the first half of his book around these seven signs and statements, and it climaxes here. In the raising of Lazarus, Jesus intends to show us not just that he has the power to raise the dead, but why. He has life in himself because he's God. The only way to get the eternal life that Jesus has been talking about through the first 11 chapters is by being united to him through faith. When we believe in Jesus... He so wraps us up in himself that his death on the cross becomes ours. His resurrection from the grave becomes ours. His history, his future becomes ours. His relationship with the Father, ours. His kingdom becomes ours. His spirit becomes ours. What we get in the gospel is Jesus, and what Jesus gives us is everything. Some of the Jews... Many of the Jews, they saw the sign and they saw what it pointed to. They did what the signs are intended to lead us to. They believed. This is what John tells us in John 20, verse 31, that the signs are written down so that we may believe exactly what Martha confessed him to be, the Messiah and the Son of God. Many saw and they believed. 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Many saw and believed, but some went to the Pharisees. Now, John doesn't tell us explicitly, but the context suggests that they're not well intended. Many saw and they turned to God, but some saw and they turned to the Pharisees. It's easy to understand what's happening here. Many of our children, probably most of them, all of them, I don't know, are fond of tattling. Right? They come and they bring news to us. It's never just to update us on what's going on. You know, Father, it's 80 degrees outside. The Celtics have tied the series at three games to three. And Josephine is using your keyboard like a surfboard. No, they basically come to us with the rod. What are we going to do about this? Many believed some went to the Pharisees. They went and told the people who've been trying to kill Jesus for a year now. The story of Lazarus gives us a picture of death and life, of life and death. 
Why do many believe? Why do some reject? It's the difference between the living and the dead. Verse 45, some believed. That is just as miraculous as the raising of Lazarus. With Lazarus, one person was raised from the dead. Here, many. The same spirit and word went forth and gave the gift of life. This is the miracle that Lazarus points to. This is the resurrection that Jesus is after. But what verse 46 highlights as well as the ensuing verses is just how sick the human heart is. Not even seeing Jesus raise a man from death can create life or give the gift of faith. Left to itself, the human heart will choose something over God. Left to itself, the natural person sees the sign and runs off to plan the son's death. They think they have more to gain by going to the Sanhedrin with this news than going to Christ in faith. That is the human condition. They're making a choice. So Mary's friends, they tell the Pharisees, she needs better friends, yes. They confine the Sanhedrin. If you're not familiar with this group, um, it's like Israel's religious many sense of autonomy or authority. You might think of our three branches of government wrapped into one, and it's religious. It's a religious council that is also inherently political. It's under Rome's authority. This is important to keep in mind. Here's this on the agenda at this emergency meeting that they convene for the Sanhedrin, verse 47. What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Here's what's so damning about their question. So self-implicating. They acknowledge that Jesus has done signs. It's not that they think Jesus is crafty, crafty and deceptive. Like after a bit of investigation, we found a little bit of food dye in Cana. Hidden bread on the hillside. He hired a desperate father here. We found the blind guy's doppelganger. Lazarus was tough to crack. But a little bit of blowfish poison slowed the heart long enough. No, the signs will lead to, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone but them. What are we going to do about him? I love what one medieval theologian said. <laughs> what are we going to do? The answer is obvious. What one blind man figured out in John chapter 9, 70 of Israel's brightest minds cannot what should we do with him? They should believe. What else is there to do but believe? They recognize that Jesus has done many signs, that they will lead people to faith. Every sign that Jesus has done in one way or another teaches us who he is and what he can do. Every sign shows us that Jesus is the author and giver of life. Water into wine, Jesus creates life. He offers better life. Cleansing of the temple, Jesus offers life with God. Healing of the nobleman's son, Jesus offers holistic life, flourishing life. Feeding of the multitude, Jesus offers satisfying life. Healing of the blind man, Jesus offers true life. 
The resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus offers the kind of life that beats the grave. In every deed, Jesus demonstrates that he is Israel's God and long-awaited Messiah come to give his people life. What should we do? We should believe. What do they do? They conspire to kill. Think about how foolish it is. They conspire to kill someone who just raised someone from the dead. <laughs> it's sin. I got an idea. There's no, notice, debate about the signs. There's no effort to wrestle with the evidence. The scribes are not cross-referencing what we've seen and heard with the law and the prophets. This is kind of what we're seeing in Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 25. No, why? The issue is not intellectual, it's spiritual and moral. Jesus is offering them eternal life, true knowledge of, union with, and life in God. They hear the offer, they simply want something different. They simply want something different. And in fact, Christ is a threat to the thing that they hold dear. And so they will exchange God for something else. What is it? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This is one issue for them. We will lose our followers. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern is not whether Jesus is the Christ, but the consequences for them if everyone else thinks that he is. Their concern is not the will of God, but the power of Rome. Their concern, as Jesus told us in John chapter 5, is not the glory that comes from God, but the glory of men. They're not thinking about the message that God is sending them through his son, but the message that they might be sending Caesar. Calvin puts it so well. He says, what is right and lawful gives them no concern, for their whole attention is directed to the consequences. If Rome gets wind that there's a new king in Israel, what do you think is going to happen to us? They're going to strip us of our temple, our land, our freedom, our power, our homes, our jobs, our ministry, our reputation. Israel's history of multiple exiles and foreign domination is looming large in their collective memory. The irony, of course, is that Israel was sent into exile twice because they failed to obey God. Here they're thinking they can avoid exile by disobeying God. How do you think that's going to work out for them? In 70 AD, Rome will sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. They exchanged the glory of God for what? A replica of a temple? A sliver of political power? They gave up their souls to sit on the Sanhedrin for 40 more years. Do you think it was worth it? Augustine writes, they were afraid of losing temporal things, right? Followers, land, building, tax-exempt status. They were afraid of losing temporal things and gave no thought to eternal life, and thus they lost both. Brothers and sisters, when we're given a choice between God and something else and we pick something else, in the end we lose it all. What are you tempted to exchange God for? 
reputation at work? Are you willing to forsake your morals and clear truth of Scripture to get a little bit ahead in your career? Have you found a way to justify sin in some sector somehow? Are you tempted to exchange God for favor with your family? Do you leave God behind when you go out with your friends? Perhaps you're tempted in a way that the Sanhedrin is to exchange God for political power and social status. Country's history and our cultural moment, the option that they're being given was King Jesus or some semblance of political stability, status quo, comfort, their own power. They couldn't have both. It was either Jesus and his kingdom or Caesar and his. They chose you their choice as choosing between Jesus as the Christ, which came with Rome's fury, or rejecting Christ, which came with Rome's favor. They were given a clear choice between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Between God in the flesh and a stone temple. Brothers and sisters, a building without God is just a building. Unless we see massive cultural tides changing, unless we see some kind of course correction in our own society, Christians, I think, will be faced with a similar option. We might describe it as the option between following King Jesus or choosing American comfort. The more and more our culture spirals into unmitigated madness, and it is, the more the state makes its MO the full-on embrace of sin, the slaughtering of children, the mutilating of bodies, the redefinition of marriage, the eraser of gender, the encroachment on religious practice, the Christian is going to have an option. Follow King Jesus or Caesar. What do you think is going to happen for those who don't join the parade? Or worse yet, for those who are willing to denounce sin as sin, the culture will use its voice, the state will use its sword against us. I promise you. Culture, broadly speaking, has moved from celebrating Orthodox Christianity to accepting it to treating us with suspicion. We're moving into a phase of hostility. If you don't think that's the case, you're simply not paying attention. The Christian will be given an option, I can obey the will of God or I can avoid the consequences at all cost. I can choose King Jesus or I can choose some kind of social comfort and political power. Christians in the West, in my mind, basically have two options. Same option that's been given to the Pharisees here. You can, one, follow King Jesus regardless of the temporal consequences. Calvin encourages us to follow boldly whatever he enjoins, not to be discouraged by any fear, though we were besieged by a thousand deaths. Take my body if you want. You can't have my soul. If we die, we die. We know that if we die, we live. If we live, we can never die. That's option one. It's faithfulness to Christ. It's citizenship in heaven. It's fidelity to Jesus at all. It's to avoid the consequences of following Jesus, whatever it takes. It's to exchange Jesus for ease. I think you can do this in one of three ways. Perhaps the most obvious is to simply apostatize. You stop following Jesus altogether. That's one way to deal with the consequences. Option two 
is to modify Jesus so that he fits into the cultural moment. You explain away the parts of the Bible and of Jesus that disagree with our ever-evolving modern ethic. Dress him up in drag if you have to. Change Christ whatever it takes. The goal is to avoid the consequences. Do whatever you can to fit in. This is the move of classic theological liberalism. It's a surefire way to gain the world and lose your soul. Same name, different Jesus. And I promise you, no Christ, no Christ of your own making has the power to raise you from the grave. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to think about even this afternoon, are there aspects of Jesus that you are tempted to change? I think the third option in the choosing, electing for comfort will be equally tempting, if not more for many of us, it's to look to the state for safety. This is what I mean. It's to put all your hopes in the temporal political process. It's to idolize people or a party. You might be tempted to go further. Instead of Rome killing Jesus, what if we just make Jesus Caesar? This is the temptation of John chapter 5. Jesus was aware that they wanted to make him king by force. Jesus is not interested in us making him king by force. This option confuses the nature of Christ's kingdom and the mission of the church. The goal becomes to Christianize the nation. In the end, Jesus becomes a prop for our politics as we confuse where our home is. Now, to be quite clear, I'm not saying... Don't be involved in politics. I'm not saying don't vote or pray. You should, as a Christian. I think you ought to vote for people and parties that will punish evil, that will promote what is good, that will platform the gospel. That's how I understand the Bible to be talking about the nature of the state. I'm saying you should vote as a Christian, which also means you don't put your hope in the state. You don't confuse the church's Mission, we don't make him king here by force. He's not interested. If your main goal is social or political comfort, you will exchange Christ for it. There's no way around it. If you're following King Jesus, when the choice comes, you will abandon him. You'll change him. You'll modify his mission. You'll prioritize your comfort above his glory. You'll look to politics and country to do what only Christ in heaven can. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to count the costs now. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning there in verse 12. He says, all. He says, in fact, all. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the norm. Evil people and imposters will become worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, as for you, continue what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we want to follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. We should continue in what we've learned what we firmly believe in from Scripture. 
The Sanhedrin had a choice. We'll keep our temple, our land, our power. They assume that other people will make the same choice as them. Look down at verses 55 through 57. As all of Israel is gathering at Jerusalem for Passover, people are wondering, is he going to show up? Is he going to make some kind of spectacle like he did at the Feast of Tabernacles? They also know that people will exchange Jesus for something. Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. They give everyone the same option, Jesus or favor with us. Jesus or a little more power in our system. Jesus or 30 silver coins. You see, the question isn't theoretical. Brothers and sisters, what are you tempted to exchange Jesus for? Here's the irony, the great irony of the text. If you choose something over Christ, you end up losing that and Jesus. They choose nation and temple and place and they lose it all. If you choose Jesus, you end up getting Jesus and everything. You end up getting a good king. You get political stability. You get comfort from God's spirit. You get true peace, true riches, God's and power. You get adoption of the greatest family. Brothers and sisters, if you choose Jesus, you get it all. By choosing Jesus, you keep your soul and one day you gain the world. If you choose the world now, you will lose both. And yet we don't often know what we value the most until we're threatened to lose it. Don't miss this. They feared losing temple and people, so they killed Jesus. The great irony is that Jesus came to die to secure a new temple and people. Behold the wisdom of God. If they had simply chosen Christ, they would have gotten it all. They would have gotten something better. The kind of land and temple that cannot be destroyed by human hands. One whose builder and architect is God. They exchanged Jesus to maintain some kind of physical, temporal, superficial power and status in this life. They're not the only ones making an exchange in the text. God exchanges Jesus to redeem people and land and temple. Not temporal, but something that will be eternal. We come to our second consideration. What would God exchange Jesus for? Verse 49, one of them, high priest. We might say among the priests, they especially represented high priests alone would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. It's a weighty responsibility, a holy responsibility. Scripture says it's an appointment for life. Now, at this point in Israel's history, it's become a political role. Rome is the one who appoints the high priest. They're appointing high priests toward their own end. They didn't serve for life. They were dispensable. Rome went through high priests like you go through podcasts. Caiaphas has been able to serve for 18 years, which is a long time. It's unusually long for this era. What it shows is his political skill. He's good at the game. Like a seasoned politician, he knows what to do to remain in power. 
he speaks to them there in verse 49. He stands up, he tells them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. That year he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Perhaps you're reading and studying this week and trying to figure out what exactly John is beating here. It's not, it's not quite as obvious to grasp. Caiaphas is saying two things. One, you don't know anything. You people are really dumb. <laughs> High priest. No. And then he says, two, you're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. But what's interesting is what John says in verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. The best way, I think, to understand the text is that Caiaphas spoke the words he wanted to say and intended them to mean one thing. And Caiaphas spoke the words that God wanted him to say and intended them to mean a different thing. Caiaphas is prophesying, but not intentionally. That's why John is saying he did not say this on his own. God, in his wisdom and his providence, cannot only use the sinful deeds and words of people, but plan them out. You're probably familiar with the story of Joseph. You know, his brothers are jealous of him. They despise him. They take him. They throw him into a pit. Their intention at first is to kill him. They instead sell him into slavery, which can be worse. He moves from being a slave to a prisoner. God was with him the whole time, protecting him, bringing him to a position where he would be near Pharaoh so that he could help Egypt and their known world navigate a famine which was important as God is protecting his people and preserving the line for the Messiah. And then Joseph famously tells his brothers who committed evil against him this, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You planned evil against me. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You planned evil. God planned it for good. God wasn't playing catch-up or working on the fly to deal with a bad situation. You planned it, you did it, God planned it, and you did it, and he used you. Something similar is happening here. Caiaphas is telling the Sanhedrin that the ends justify the means. If we don't do anything, if people go on believing him, if Rome finds out there's a new king in Israel, they're going to destroy our temple, they're going to kill us, the leaders, they're going to send everyone into exile. There will be corporate suffering. He's saying, guys, if we just kill one time, well, then the entire nation can live. We can justify the death. Killing him is blasphemy for us, insurrection for them. It's better for one man to perish than the whole nation. We do this to appease Rome. Caiaphas intends his words to communicate evil. Words but means them to be something different by his spirit. One man dies for the nation, not to satisfy Rome, but to satisfy God. It is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for in the place of, on behalf of, as a representative, a substitute for the nation. Jesus died on the cross in the place of others so that they did not have to die. 
This is what John was telling us there in John chapter one, John the Baptist, that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sins are laid upon him and he dies so that we might go free. Jesus is our substitute. His death, his death is penal and he makes atonement on our behalf to God about the coming Messiah. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace is on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus doesn't die simply as an example. He doesn't die as a martyr. He doesn't die simply to change our minds or even simply to communicate that God loves us. He dies on our behalf as a substitute for sin. He was punished in our place for our wrongs, pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The Lord punished him so that we might go free. Brothers and sisters, what would God exchange his son for? You. Behold your high priest in Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, is only concerned with saving his own blood. Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant, gives up his blood for you. The author of Hebrew writes there in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. He entered the most holy place once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cows sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse the living God? Why is it that we can live why is it John 3.16 we don't perish? It's because God the Son perished in our place. He's our substitute. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian. This is the heart of what we would want you to hear this morning. You have sinned against God, which means that you have exchanged him for lesser false gods like comfort and reputation and worldly pleasure. God in his mercy, in his kindness came to die for you in Christ Jesus. He perished so that you would not. He lived perfectly on your behalf. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave, which is why he can offer you right now a share in his life. God is offering you today Jesus Christ and all his benefits. We would encourage you to turn from your sins and to trust in him. We would encourage you to stay afterwards and chat with any of our members about the gospel. We love talking about Jesus. We would exchange God for 40 years of peace, for 30 pieces of silver, for an easier time at work, for less drama in our family. God exchanges his son for us. The substitutionary nature of the gospel, it makes it so staggering. It's the sinless one who dies for his enemies. The king lays himself down for his 
rebels. Brothers and sisters, because of sin, there had to be a death, but it did not have to be Jesus. God, in his love, comes to die for us. Jesus secures for us not just the forgiveness of sins, but something else. Look there again at verse 48. The thing they thought they'd lose, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. The thing they thought they'd lose, God in his wisdom actually secures in Jesus' death. Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to unite the scattered children of God. They feared exile. They feared being scattered. And God in his providence uses the death of Christ to unite that which was not. Jesus died not just for individuals, but to form a new people of God. It's as we heard in our scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 43. Jesus is dying not just for the nation, that's for Israel, but also for the Gentiles. There in Isaiah 43, do not fear for and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them, indeed I have made them. Seeing his faith that this text is about the Gentiles. He says there, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' death not only wins for us the forgiveness of sins, it undoes the exile. Jesus' death not only reconciles us to God, but unites us to each other. Jesus' death not only deals with our hostility toward God, but with our fellow man. Jesus' death, as we saw there in John chapter 10, brings sheep from outside the pen in. Jesus' death breaks down the dividing wall. He makes the many into one. Jesus' death was not just for Jew, but for Gentile. We can go further, not just for the rich, but for the poor, not just for Latino or white or black or Asian, but for all. Jesus' death and resurrection in spirit give what nothing else can, the gift of unity. Unity where there is diversity, the gift of oneness. Oneness where there are many. This will become especially clear. Oneness among his followers. It's actually a distinguishing mark. It proves us to be his disciples. We know that Jesus died to pay for our sins. Brothers and sisters, do you know and believe that Jesus died? Do you value brothers and sisters in our body, period? Do you value brothers and sisters in our body who are not like you? Who have different looks and cultural expressions than you? Do you find yourself annoyed with their worship practices or communication styles or habits? Are you actively striving to love members who are different? Are you praying the Lord would add more members who are not like you? Do most of your prayers for our church sound like, God, give us more people like me? Are you inclined to favor and show partiality to people who are like you? Have you added some kind of condition that's necessary for your covenant loyalty? Or brothers and sisters, are you celebrating the gift of God's diversity? And do you cherish the gift of unity that he's given us in Christ? 
Jesus died to unify that which was not, to gather that which was scattered, to bring peace where there was war, to give the world a remarkable witness, love where there's temptation, the many one. The churches historically recognize this. We sang about it in the church's one foundation. We confess it in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic that is universal and apostolic church. Jesus didn't die for multiple brides or bodies or flocks. He died for one to make it one. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus died for our unity, and it's the kind of unity that exists among diversity, how much should we prize it? Make no mistake, the opportunities to divide will abound and will increase in the years to come. Jesus is not indifferent to how we relate to one another. Do you only get along with brothers and sisters who think just like you? At the end of the day, we're forced to the same question as earlier. Will I follow King Jesus even if it leads me to some discomfort? Discomfort outside the church, discomfort inside the church. Following Jesus most assuredly will lead to increasing persecution from outsiders of the world opposes us. And it will lead to pain inside as we live with people that God thought were worth exchanging his son for. Is that how you look at your brothers and sisters? God thought it was worth giving up Jesus for him or for her. How we respond to these two things, suffering and how they cannot be explained otherwise. We're pressed with the same question, will we follow Jesus? The Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sanhedrins were given an option. King Jesus and Israel as is under Rome... Or we can follow King Jesus and be a part of his new people. They chose wrong. Verse 53, so from that day they plotted to kill him. This is why we see there in verse 54 that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He departed, departed the countryside. He stayed with his disciples. Most of the Sanhedrin rejected him. Most of Israel will abandon him. Even one of his disciples, one of the twelve, will betray him. Brothers and sisters, the temptation is real. Are you aware of yours? When push comes to shove, will we follow Christ as king inside and outside these walls, or will we choose something different? Paraphrasing Augustine, if we fear losing something temporal more than gaining eternal life, we will miss out on both. Eternal life with God in his kingdom as his people. It's as we pursue the king and his kingdom together as we love one another in unity, even as the world is pressing us down, that we give them a compelling reason to come and to follow Jesus with us. May we choose King Jesus. Let's pray.